0: Cooking issues coming to you live in the heart of New York City, Rockefeller Center at Newsstand Studios. Joined remotely today by Nastasia Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? I'm good. And you are remote uh, because you were exposed to the but you weren't with former President Barack Obama. But you got exposed to like his new style of COVID. Is that true? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm
1: being safe.
0: Yeah. Nice. Uh, can you can you let people know? So this is classic. If you've been in business with Nastasia Lopez as long as I have, you, you get to appreciate the classic Nastasia moves. You want to? So any of you out there that have a business know that people like just send you random scam emails constantly. So what was it? What was it uh, they sent to you for the pasta flyer business? That you know, Nastasia closed that restaurant down on Sixth Avenue. How many years ago? I think three. Three years ago. Okay, so what did you get? Yeah. I got a text saying that I qualify or pasta flyer qualifies for $257,000. Mm. Uh, and I wrote back and said, the, the restaurant closed, but can I still get the money? And they said, yeah, send us your email. And I said, it's <laughs> scam, email. Said, scam yeah. at email. Scam at com. Scam at com. That's classic. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah yeah Nastassi and I love to do that kind of stuff uh all right uh we also have uh, of course uh working the working the sliders here we got Joe hazen in the booth how you doing I'm doing
2: great how are you doing
0: doing well i'm doing all right uh we got uh we got captain uh John Nehul here behind me rocking the customer service how you doing John doing great thanks and what do we got what do we got uh, let's do the bookkeeping right now what do we got
1: Bookkeeping right now. What do we got? So for the first time ever, we are live streaming on YouTube for our Patreon people. You got to go check out Patreon and uh, see the post about it. We are still. Uh, and
2: reminder that's for all access members only.
1: P.S. Jack. That's
0: Jackie Molecules rocking the California booth, which right. I haven't introduced yet. How you doing, Jack? You doing well?
1: I'm good. Sorry, I broke a radio rule. Speaking it's not a radio rule. It's
0: not a radio. Listen, everyone knows you anyway. Like, if Jackie Molecules can't say what he wants when he wants, what the hell is the world coming to? <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. back. Uh, anything interesting to report from uh, California?
1: No, 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 nothing really. Except, except getting this video set up, which is which is fun. Yeah. Um, and yeah, reminder: it's for the all access members, which is the ten dollar per month tier. So if you don't see
2: it
0: all access sounds always sounds super gross to me all access just sounds freaking horrible anyway i mean i know it's a good thing i know people want all access but like anytime someone says we'll give you all access to something i'm like oh please no please edit please just give me partial (laughs) access to only the good stuff anyway uh back back to bookkeeping john what do we got thank you
1: um We are still doing the Discount with Orking Salmon up through the end of April, so check Patreon for that. Um, And then upcoming guests next week, Monday at 10 a.m., special time. There will be no show on Tuesday next week. On Monday at 10 a.m., we have Kenji Lopez-Alt coming in, which will be great. Uh, Then we've got James Hoffman coming on, Adam DiMartino at a future date, Oliver Millman at a future date, and hopefully Tanya Hopkins at a later date. And we... We'll be working with Kitchen Arts and Letters to offer tw- or a discount, to be determined amount, uh, for Kenji's uh, upcoming book. So stay tuned about that.
0: Well, and if you want to meet Kenji, first of all, I should just say this. Today in the studio for the first half, we're doing a, uh, a half-the-show version of Classics in the Field, yeah, Old School, with Matt Sartwell. We're going to, from Kitchen Arts and Letters, uh, which you can find uh, on the socials at K A. K-A-L-N-Y-C. Yeah, K-A-L-N-Y-C. That would be Kitchen Arts, like, well, the arts, th- there's one A, so you don't get the and. Kitchen Arts Letters, N-Y-C. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so we're going to do uh, a Classics in the Field, but Kenji is going to be at for, like, you don't really normally open then, do you?
2: No, we're opening, uh, we're not really opening, We're. we're I'm getting there early, uh, so Kenji can come in sign a couple hundred books for us. Uh, on Monday morning, and oh, we are, are, are
0: customers allowed to go or no, no, no oh, is, sorry
2: people this is a uh, oops we gotta we gotta turn him through because he 's got this uh,
0: yeah, don rendezvous him. with you don 't fishbowl him then. I thought maybe it was like an early morning signing, which is like I thought maybe it was some sort of like West coast thing that like West Coast authors now that he 's a west <laughs> coast guy are like we 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 sign things very early in the morning, but you know yeah i 've just. Just doing
2: what we can to make it happen. All right, all right.
0: So uh, since we only have you for the first half, uh, John, remind me. I'll save my uh, regular morning tangents for uh, for after the break. Perfect. All right, you yep. gonna remind me?
1: I, I won't have to, but yeah. The hell is this? Right, you'll you'll go on your tangents.
0: <laughs> so since... before we get into people's classics in the field question, I have to get this out of the way. I'm sorry, Matt, uh, but Matt knows that. And everybody who listens to this show knows that uh, I've been kind of deep diving on this pie expert, uh, Monroe Boston (laughs) Strauss. Uh, I now, you know, (laughs) own something like six or seven Monroe Boston Strauss pie tins. I have, you know, uh, which they're fine. They're not great pie tins. They're not God's pie tin. Anyway, by the way, you should own several sizes of pie pan. I have two. You need several sizes. Here's why. Uh, let's say you want to use his classic trick of doing the inverted baking where you bake on an upside-down pie pan. Well, then you're going to want to upend that into the next size sense. up. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah.
2: Uh, some of, there's a lot of new pie books out, right? Uh, yes. The fall of uh, 2020 was like the pie Piemageddon.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, it was. Any, any of them that stick out that you really enjoy?
2: Um, I think there were several pretty strong books that came out uh, in that rush. Uh, uh, Kate McDermott, uh, who's had the two pie books, and of course now I can't distinguish them in my brain. Uh, but either of them is, is strong. There was a book called New Pie, which came out a little earlier, a couple of guys from Atlanta. Uh, I can remember make...
0: that. They were non-pros who, like, just enters a whole bunch of contests, yes. and they do a whole bunch of weird things to the, to the pies. Like, they use some modern techniques and...
2: Some, yeah. I mean, there's some, some fairly classic things, but they're, they're pretty crowd-pleasing pies. Um, I think they, they have a few unusual approaches, but mostly it's just the tweaks of flavor rather than technique. Um, so I would say, uh, those, uh, Aaron McDowell, um, I would look also, you know, it's been around for longer. The book from four and 20 blackbirds, uh, all of those are strong, strong pie books. Yeah, nice.
0: Well, uh, yesterday of course was Pi day. Yes. John, if, uh, if we're all still alive next year, we should uh, make sure that we do our pie social stuff at actually one fifty nine. That way it's 3.1415. Nine, right, and then that—that that, you know—that's about as many as I keep in my head. When I was a kid, were, were any of you guys memorizing pi? Kids? I was one of those memorizing pi kids. I used to do be able to do a couple
2: hundred digits. Oh no! No, uh, no. It's three point stupid... one four. You don't, you never had the one five nine, and then like I, I think I would have said one five seven, so I would have been the
0: way I always remembered it was three point one four one five nine, and then I think I can't remember what's after that. I thought then the the next digit I always remembered as a single, and I think it's two, and then there's like you remember them in like y- 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 you remember them in like strings. Like I know like pretty soon after that there's an eight nine seven nine. Like it's like you gotta like you s- you remember it almost like a gotta find the roll and you gotta, then, yeah, yeah you gotta find that you gotta find the pie roll anyway. Uh, yesterday being Pi Day, I thought it was m- moderately appropriate to uh, discuss uh, Mon- uh, Monroe, Boston, Strauss. Now, I'm going to ask Matt this because you know he's the expert in this. So his famous book was called Pi Marches On. Absolute, the classic in the field. Amazing book. Everybody knows it. Hard to find now, but there's reprints and it's online, scanned. Monroe, Boston, Strauss came up with a second almost completely unknown book that is – I've never – seen in the wild a copy of it i interlibrary loaned it it's called how to make better pies and it is an entirely different book and i have done all the research kind of that there is to do on it i have scanned a copy of this book uh and we have it up for patreon people right, right? it's uh, right up now for pot four pie day for you guys i know i owed you a video i haven't done the video yet But I put that book up, scanned. I tried to do a good job. I don't know if you guys looked at it. It's a decent scanning job. I did a decent job of scanning it and OCRing it, right? It is obviously a lot of the same information, but um, like Pi Marches On, which was a series of articles that was published in a magazine... Uh, how to make better pies is also a series of articles in a different magazine, so they are slightly different, and he has slightly different points, especially about uh, he finally talks about how to substitute flour in, in bakers in the um, in the how to make better pies. So that's up there for you for Patreon people. Now here's the question: since I'm a believer in information being free, especially because the actual copyright on this is as long as you give the original people credit, you're allowed to distribute it. Right, according to the original magazine that was in, they're like, awesome. do, they're like, do what you want as long as you give us credit. And since they're way defunct, I'm super happy to. Anyway, I'd be happy to give them credit. So, how long do I wait to have it just be the jealously guarded secret of the Patreon people, and then release it into the world so that everyone can have this amazing document?
2: Uh, I absolutely uh, understand the impulse there. I don't know the answer to that question. I uh, I'm afraid that you would really need to talk to somebody who has been to law school. Well, be, no, I mean, not legally, that.
0: just like, what do you think's right to give our Patreon people?
2: Morally right? Uh, like a month? Well, you mean your Patreon people do good things for you. I, I, I give it a little longer for the Patreon people. I give it like six months. Six yeah. months? Yeah. All right. I mean, and the, the true believers who are not yet subscribed to your Patreon will be willing to wait. All right. And All right. maybe it'll tip the balance and, you know, support you. That's
0: true because if you wanted to go buy this book, there's one copy on uh, on the internet, as far as I know. I spoke to uh, Bonnie about it, and she was like, "She thinks that the two copies that are up, one of them's fake, and the other one, you know, it's like one of these places that like says that they have it, but they don't. They just price match and try to go get it, which I didn't even know was a thing." She's like, "Oh yeah, that's a thing."
2: It's definitely a thing. Yeah. No, if if she's suspicious, I would. I would trust that yeah. suspicion.
0: So there's one copy available on the internets, and it's $300. So one of you can go buy it if you want, or you could just join the Patreon and get the scan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Much cheaper, and, you know, yeah. $300 is not a surprisingly high price for that book. It's a paperback. Still, the scarcity of material, given being what it is, I'm not, you know, I, yeah. I've seen worse. The thing is, is that I have a love for these things that are not,
0: actually valuable just no one cared about them until much later and so they weren't saved
2: well that's the that's the story of so so many books Um, I mean Monroe Boston Strauss has had sort of waves of revival but this may be the first time that he's sort of caught the attention of somebody who's willing to do something about it
0: yeah you know me yeah yeah so Speaking of that, uh, when Dave Chang was on, I mentioned that, you know, again, the pie king was there and how Los Angeles is, is actually where a lot of pie innovation happened in the uh, early mid uh, 20th century, right, from the 20s up to the 40s, uh, because of him, really. But you think also Marie is down there, like that. That was the genesis of a lot of kind of modern modern pie work was there. Uh, the chiffon pie. Of course, I was going to say, say chiffon pie. Well, that's Strauss. It, yeah. That's that's. Last year was the 100th anniversary of the chiffon pie, and I couldn't get anyone to have us write an article about it. Right, John? That's right. It's ridiculous. I was like, 100th anniversary, of the chiffon pie. And, P.S., you're all doing it not – there's no right or wrong way, but, like, the original was cornstarch thickened, which is weird because Monroe, Boston Strauss was well-known for hating cornstarch as an over-thickening agent, and yet that's how his chiffons were thickened, not with gelatin. So, you know, the original way is actually a vegetarian way, not uh, a gelatin Hmm. way. There you have it. Um, Anyways, uh, I – and, you know – what did I say I was going to do for the video? We'll get into it later. I'm, I'm digressing. Exactly. The, the yeah. other Los Angeles thing that I, I spoke to you about, and this is why you sent me to, to Bonnie on ephemera, is uh, Guardian Serviceware, the crazy aluminum pots. You ever, you ever? I've gone too I've, deep on this. I've seen pictures of them. I've never owned one. I now own too, mon- too many of them, <laughs> and I have a couple of uh, you know uh, listeners and Patreon subscribers who have started snatching this stuff up on eBay. It's still really cheap. It's not induction-friendly, so it's not necessarily a long-term solution for mm-hmm. those of us that are going to move to induction in the near future. It's gas and electric only, but they're very thick aluminum pans, and they're a form of waterless cooking. So, like, everyone used to go – so what waterless cooking was back in the day is you would – Very, like, tightly make the pot so that the lids fit on very tightly, and then you would cook everything with the water that came with it. And it's a very similar analog to Dave Chang's microwave bowls, right? So his microwave bowls, the idea is you microwave it, they make steam, the steam then absorbs all the stuff, and and fundamentally you're no longer microwaving the food anymore. You're just providing the energy to generate the steam, and it's steaming itself in its own vapors and guardian Serviceware from the 30s to the 50s when their factory burned down in los angeles uh they were doing the same thing uh waterless cooking during world war ii when there was an aluminum shortage right at the beginning they stopped making their lids out of aluminum made their lids out of glass so if you're searching for these things guardian serviceware they're pretty awesome i love them uh but glass lids are post-war and metal lids are pre-war and i have put up Both copies of the first edition, which is the pre-war metal lid edition, and the second edition, which is the glass lid edition of Guardian Service, tested recipes, up for the Patreon users as well. So you can look at their recipe book, should you be so inclined.
2: They stuck with the glass lids post-war. They did. They
0: they stayed with it. And what's interesting is is that uh, as a business, I find this very interesting because sometimes you do things because you have to, but then you end up liking it more. So having cooked with both glass and metal lids on the Guardian Service, everybody... I'm gonna, correct me if i'm wrong guys what do you like cooking with glass or or do, do you like the the stainless steel common lid like old school all-clad lid or do you prefer glass lids
2: uh, i use what i get out of the drawer first yeah. wow
0: by the way all lids should be you got to figure out a way to hang your lids drawer uh, lid drawers are an abomination
2: <laughs> I I don't disagree with you, but uh, somebody I have to get the people to move out of the apartment next door before I can oh. expand my kitchen. That way,
0: oh, yeah, 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 I mean, like uh, on my as far as I can, my lids are on the wall. That's why, like, luckily, in my metal lids, I've drilled holes in them all uh, in the edges so that I can hang them. And then in my glass lids, they usually have a vent hole. Glass lids do, I guess. Otherwise, they might be crack if the heat was too high or something. I don't know, but most oh. glass lids that I have have a a grommet-lined hole that you can put uh, over a brad, at least most of mine do. Um,
1: we should get to some classics well, in the field.
0: So I would say everyone likes seeing through glass, but the old-school one, they used to use a trick because what am I going to say, John? What am I going to say? What is the key thing about aluminum in the kitchen?
1: I, I, don't, I don't know. Okay,
0: two key things. One, amazing heat conductor. Yeah, okay. We all know this, yeah. right? Second, really, only to copper in commonly found kitchen equipment. Two, very low emissivity. So the thing that they're trying to work around here is the fact that you can't get a lot of browning. So they have a lot of roasting recipes, but all their roasting recipes do a lot of pre-browning of the meats because there's no emissivity. So you get almost no browning, even if you stick it in the oven. Now, what they do do with the old glass lids, and I haven't tested it yet, but get this. They put it on the burner. And the whole point is you use very little gas because it's such a good heat conductor. And then you pull it off the burner. You move the lid over to the side and literally literally reflect the, the, the gas flame's radiant heat off the lid and boom, back onto the food to brown it. That's how they tell you to do it in the first edition cookbook.
2: I would be scared. I'm just skeptical. I haven't tested it yet, but I'm just like, really? Really? Is the lid meant to get that hot?
0: I mean... And- I- Well, it it shouldn't get, it should get some conduction heat, but all of the radiation, most of it should be reflected. So, to the extent that there is radiant heat coming off of it, it's supposed to act like a very good reflector. Uh, Interesting concept. One last one, John. I know you're mad at me. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Their double boiler is a dry double boiler. Seriously, nothing nothing down below. No water. So what it is is it's, it's just one pot sitting inside of another, perfect seal between the two pots, and just an air gap between them, and that's their double boiler. They're like, our heat is so even that we can do a double boiler without water. Have you tried it? I have one on the way. Okay. Glass lid. <laughs> anyway, uh, when their factory burned down, and they moved from Chicago to uh, Los Angeles, and when their factory burned down in the 50s, They
2: went the way of the dodo. Hard to recover from that.
0: All right, classics in the field. So are we answering questions or are we just letting Matt talk about classics? He he had the questions in advance. He can... can, Yeah. You can describe... Why don't you do it in the order that you see fit?
2: Okay, well, I have some of the questions uh, in my head and I worked out some longer answers to them. Uh, Depending on how time goes, we can revisit some of them. One of the questions that popped up several times was information about classics from the classic era. Books from the classical era, I should say. So books from ancient times. Um, Those are very scarce. Uh, Not a lot has survived. um, And what we often have uh, is fragmentary material. Um, And stylistically, in terms of approach, they're very different from anything we would consider a cookbook these days. The oldest material that we have... in any kind of substantial form, comes from about 330 BC. Uh, It's a poem by a guy named Archistratus of Gala, which was a Greek settlement in Sicily. And his work doesn't actually survive on its own, uh, but large portions of it are quoted in a work that was published at the end of the second century AD, so almost 500 years later. Uh, He was quoted extensively in uh, a book by a fellow named Athenaeus, uh, who was a well-known orator. He was living in a Greek colony in, uh, in northern Egypt. And he wrote a book, 15 volumes, uh, called The Deep Nosophists," which translates as roughly The Philosopher Diners or The Learned Banqueters. Um, and it ranges across a wide range of subjects, somewhat erratically, as you might expect from Uh, dinner conversation among learned people in Greece. And he often quotes uh, from Arkostratus, who gives something like recipes, something like shopping tips, mostly for choosing fish. The Greeks were serious about fish in a way that um, almost nobody who succeeded them has ever been serious about it. Um, And uh, it's full of advice on how to recognize a good one, Don't let an Italian cook this particular fish because they'll do it wrong, but have them cook this fish instead. Uh, It's highly opinionated. It has a lot of character, but it's not a set of detailed instructions in the way that we now in the 21st century expect.
0: Italians at the time, well-known bad cooks, right? They hired Greeks
2: to do their cooking. Well, they hated work, right? They, the Romans hated work. Well, I mean, lots of people hated work, particularly the people who were producing these books. I mean, and that's one of the problems with the surviving material. Um, so Plato, for instance, uh, didn't really think much of the Sicilians because he thought they were too serious about food. Plato was suspicious of people who liked to eat well. Yeah. He thought also, it was a sign of character. Plato, good writer, crazy lunatic man. Yeah, lots of, in lots of respects. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, he was... Uh, paranoid and uh, hyper-conservative and invented Atlantis to discourage the Greeks from having a navy. I mean, uh, so not always the person you want to go to for good food advice. Mm. So th- there were fragments of books t- that we know like about tiny little amounts of. like a, uh, There was a book on bread-making uh, by someone named Chrysippus of uh, Tyana, but it's only known by reference in other works. Um, so, the idea that something you know equivalent to even like the Karem of of classical Greece, just those those things weren't being produced in part because the people who did the work were not the people who were creating the books. What about
0: the what about the? Um the cuneiform tablets in the Yale Babylonian collection that were translated a number of years ago by that French guy who's now dead?
2: Um, I don't. I haven't seen material from them, and my recollection is that it's uh, more in the way of record-keeping than it is a set of actual instructions. But, I mean, he,
0: I forget the guy's name, he compiled a book which was then translated uh, in the mid-2000s but yeah, it's one of those things where the recipes, I read the recipes and they're extremely like mash up, mash up these things and you get it together. But then people have tried to um people have, this one professor tried to like infer based on other knowledge he had of what people would have had, tried to infer kind of how they would cook and he did a cookbook, but I forget the name of it. But you know, and then recently there was in England in a in 2019, I think some uh, group of Mesopotamian scholars did a dinner where they tried to recreate a lot of the stuff. Uh, but again, it's a lot of it's very speculative. I think
2: it, it has to be speculative, just because uh, we're not even confident in a lot of cases about the ingredient names. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, if you start going back and looking at the history of early grains, there's there's so much division about what something possibly could have been that it's all. Making leaps of faith.
0: Right, I mean, even stuff that is fairly well-attested, like Apicius, right, which we haven't gotten into yet. Is that how, you, is
2: that how I'm supposed to pronounce it, Apicius? Like, how I you... say I say Apicius. I mean, I know people say Apicius, but I also say Julius Caesar instead of Julius Caesar, so... Who says that? You should say it the way you say it. I like it the better the way you say it. Apicius? Yeah, and Julius Caesar. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I say... I don't try to pretend that I'm pronouncing it in the classical Latin way, because... They're all dead anyhow. Yeah, but I mean these they've entered contemporary culture and sort of assumed contemporary American pronunciations is my that's my thinking, yeah, also though people shouldn't make the mistake that just because everyone's dead
0: that we can't figure out how it was pronounced. there's a whole historical linguistics uh uh field of study which is amazingly interesting. I took a class on it in college where they can deduce the pronunciation based on the changes that happen post that language. It's amazing work. you ever read that stuff i Read small amounts of it and realized I was in way over my head. Yeah, it's it's just amazing to know that somebody does that. That's all I need to know. I don't need to do it. I took a <laughs> class on it, and it's enough to know that there are other people who do it. But my issue with uh, Apicius is is that most people, and this is why my favorite is, I think, the more, more recent one. Instead of the the Dover reprint, I prefer the Sally Granger because she, I think— Tries to take seriously the recipes and not say, "Well, all of these recipes m- must have been wrong." Therefore, I'm going to use my modern cook sensibility to recreate them, which I think is always the wrong move. Like, I think the assumption is is that these people, a, knew what they were talking about, and b,
2: their food tasted good. That's always the assumption to make, right? I think I think you have to take it that way because otherwise, I mean, why are you interested um, if you're not trusting in in the author uh, to have at least a passionate concern with their subject matter, then you're wasting your time. Uh, and the the Velling translation that is, that I think the one that's available in Dover, um, it was a interesting work because it got the ball rolling on doing translations of Apicius. but there have been numerous subsequent ones. And the Grocock and, uh, and Granger one, the Prospect Books has done, that is impressive. It, it acknowledges differences in the text. It tries to understand them um, That's a serious effort to get into the material and see what can be drawn from it.
0: Right. And speaking of Sally Granger, we should get her on sometime. I don't know if she's interested, but she just did a recent book on uh, fish sauce on garum and liquaman, but it's unobtainable because it just costs so dang much. Why did... Well, you said that their publisher is known for not caring about things.
2: There are some publishers whose whose business model involves direct sales solely to interested academics, um, and they... Assume that it's somebody with a book buying budget, either a library or uh, an institutional budget, and so they're pricing the books at a hundred and eighty, five hundred dollars. Um, they don't offer discounts to booksellers uh, or to any kind of reseller because they're confident in their in the direct market.
0: Weak, weak.
2: It it breaks my heart because you know there's a lot of ask a lot of very good material out there that should be more widely available.
0: All right, now for a more modern, someone had a question, uh, and then we'll, then we'll move to a different continent. Unless you have more for the, uh, for the old world? No, there. no, I think we... No, no. uh, or the Euro- European slash... Because there's nothing Egyptian, right? No one's done any good work on
2: Egyptian? Not that I've seen. I mean, you know, tiny bits of information around about beer making uh, and so forth, but food production... You know, and there's some blurry lines about the way Egyptians treated beer. They sort of concert, considered it a way of preserving grain, and um, and they fed people a lot of beer, a weak beer, uh, but nothing more complex than that that I'm aware of.
0: Any, uh, any good, uh, really good new work uh, in English for, like, uh, the translation of the 14th century Islamic stuff?
2: There are. There have been some books, there are several good books that are, um, that are coming out um, translated by a scholar named Nawal Nasrallah, uh, and she has uh, continued to translate that material, I think very thoughtfully, uh, well supported by footnotes and anecdotes and, and her own research. But those are expensive, too. They run anywhere from 90 to $200. So it's better than some things, but it's not a casual weekend to pick up. And are these the kinds of things that you—I guess
0: you'd have to interlibrary loan them if you didn't have the money, right, or something like this?
2: Yeah, I would, I would assume that a good interlibrary loan program would be able to get them to you. I mean, we keep three or four of them at the store uh, because we do get enough inquiries about them. They're not on the website, unfortunately, because, to be honest— um, I need to spend time with them to be able to write about them intelligently. And I haven't done that yet.
0: Most of the stuff that I've seen, uh, well, see, I haven't researched it in a number of years, so you, you tell me. But you know, the last time I researched it with you was a number of years ago. Uh, medieval, medieval Chinese stuff in English was really sparse. Has anything good
2: thing good come out? I haven't seen it, no. I mean, I, I, I'd love to have a selection of things like that, but I'm not aware that it's been translated.
0: Right, and I know that someone was working on a translation of the old like uh, Thai royal stuff. Did, did that ever come to light? Not. Andy to my Ricker knowledge. told me that that there were these old documents that Thompson got and or whatever, and then. Wow, I mean, I'd love to have that. I'll, I'll ping I'll ping
2: to, uh, ping Ricker. I, see I will. What, I will. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, that would be fantastic. Amazing. I mean, amazing. I have no idea but, what that would even look like. But.
0: Right, because those recipes are different. Because it's like they live in a different. Literally different, like plain from yes, from the ordinary people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, wouldn't that be that be something, something? Yeah. All right. So uh, we have a question uh, from uh, Rappa. Does Matt know it? We're talking about the what I've always referred to as the Mukolito books, but there's actually four books, right? There's Introduction to Japanese Cuisine, Flavor and Seasonings, and then there's Cutting Techniques One, Mukolito One, and Mukolito Two, right? So, uh, do you know if they're just out of stock or if they're out of print?
2: They are technically out of stock, but there is no date in the system as of a week or two when I last checked on them. So, that means it, at least not in the next two to three months. Um, but uh, they're distributed in the United States by Random House on behalf of Kodansha, and um, i have back orders in the in the random house system for all of them and
0: yeah and they're well enough known that the price on abe is pretty jacked up
2: i am not surprised to hear that yet. yeah yeah uh, they are useful uh, meticulous books and i don't understand what the what the difficulty is in finding a bigger market for them i mean i don't
0: own any of them but i've seen the the spreads and
2: they're yeah. pr- pretty good yeah they're i mean they're 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 from the source they are the kind of uh, careful, thoughtful, precise uh, approach that you would expect from a serious Japanese uh, system, and I don't know why it's such a struggle.
0: Are they in English as well, or no? Are they? they are s- in
2: English. Yeah, they are translated.
0: Are they as bad as the Monte Not that I'm going to ha- make you bad mouth the, Monte- the English
2: translation is better.
0: Yeah? yeah. I mean, you know how I feel about certain Spanish publishers' translation skills. I,
2: I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I will say that they are getting better. I don't know that they've actually hit the perfect point, but they have taken criticism seriously. Well, that's nice. I mean, if I can tell that your Spanish
0: translation is bad, it's real <laughs> bad.
2: Yeah. Because I don't speak Spanish. So it has to be really bad for me to know. There are, there are some publishers in Spain who are being very careful. The, uh, the recent Disrutar book was really well translated. It felt pretty idiomatic.
0: Nice. I mean, like, yeah, I've said it a million times, but like the 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 most important Spanish book in the United States in the early two thousands wasn't, I don't think, the the El Bulli books. It was uh, it was the uh, Roca book. In terms of its impact on working chefs, everyone I know who was interested in in sous vide low temperature book, they were all getting the Roka book, and a lot of people based a lot of their early thoughts off of the Roka book. It was the only book on 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 technique, yeah. You know, prior to uh, when Thomas Keller came out with his book, which I have issues with, many issues with. I have issues with the Roka book too, but it was the very first group to attempt to do it. Uh, And it was kind of a kind of a watershed moment. And, you know, at the school, when I was at the French culinary at the time, uh, we had both the Spanish and the English versions. And so I, you know, looked at them side by side, because uh, the Rokas were super famous for this uh, warm cod. Right. Mm -hmm. And so and then I looked at the recipe. I was like, that's gross because it's cod. Right. And I'd never been to El Calar Can I still haven't, which is unfortunate because I'd love to go. I was like, that's gross. 104 degrees cod. You know what I mean? Like gross. And then I looked at it. It's it's, it's, it's bacalao. So it's salt cod. Entirely different beast. Beast, And just that's how little they cared about. Translating into English back in when was that book? Oh four, oh five, something like that. Might even
2: been a little oh little three, oh two, that, yeah.
0: somewhere I, around I would there. I'd have said two. But. Yeah, oh two. That makes sense because that yeah right because uh, oh one or oh two because Wiley. I was buying him circulators in like oh two, oh three, you know, and he had that book right when WD opened oh. WD fifty. It was like he had that very early on. And I, I, was remember, I remember reading that book and being like, what the hell is this? You know what I mean? Like, anyway. All right, so let's get some more classics so that we can, uh, well, all right, all right. We got to get the classics out because I lose Matt after the ad roll. I'll have to do an ad
2: soon. So what else do we have? What okay. about New World? Hit me. For, do we want to do classics in the field? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, two, two books that I brought to suggest. First, not really New World, but Simple French Food by Richard Olney. Um, amazing book from 1974. Uh, Olney is an incredible snob. And he's a big liar uh, about when it comes to the the idea of simplicity. But if you know that going in, you're going to find this a fascinating book. He is incredibly passionate and detailed. Uh, At the same time, uh, he's you get the feeling that he would have been a a horrible pain in the ass to know and work with. But the book is completely absorbing, and it is very true, particularly to Southern French Provençal food. So I think it's the kind of thing that anybody who's interested in French food needs to know about. Just take his—I mean, he tosses around the word imbecile uh, fairly often with regard to just about anybody. It's a good word, though. Who isn't himself. Well—
0: <laughs> I mean, it's not a good. You're not allowed to say it anymore. I mean, it's like it sounds good.
2: Imbecile. Imbecile. Well, you like you dolt use to, better. Use it too many times, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, it starts to lose its power. Yeah. Um, As a contrast to that, uh, I came to talk about *Taste of Country Cooking* by Edna Lewis. Both of these are about uh, home cooking. They're very rooted in a sense of place. The the Lewis book is about the food, mostly the food that she knew growing up in a very small community in in rural Virginia. Um, It's very connected to the way the food was produced, where the ingredients came from she talks about a salad green that they picked that they planted along the fence post on the way to the well because they watered the greens every day as they were carrying water into the house so it has that that sense of uh of being very connected to a way of life um the only book is a little more there's a a key phrase point in the early part of the only book where he talks about uh how when he talks to the men in the village he lives in, they're always willing to talk about great food forever and ever. And the women get very tired of talking to him about it very quickly. Um, and I think he's sort of divorced the, the work of the production of this food from the enjoyment of eating it. Yeah, uh, Easy
0: to talk about if you don't have to make it.
2: Yes. And I think that comes through. But still, it's, it is, um, it's an amazing document of, of, of culture and food. And despite his um, intrusiveness... Uh, and uh, his giant blind spots, uh, he is passionately concerned with with the way that these people were cooking and eating. But diametrically opposed to Edna Lewis. Yeah, I I mean, it would, I, I've never seen the two of them in a room together. Uh, I can't imagine how much they would have had to say to each other in their time. But Lewis was, uh, she was very calm and collected and stately and um, and I think didn't much care about what other people thought. Uh, And Olney was passionate and intense and sort of a darting wit. Um, And technically incredibly accomplished as a cook, but um, not much uh, flexibility in the way he thought about things. Yeah.
0: Hmm. So let me ask you a quick question. I'm going to get my butt handed to me here. Uh, in the Americas, has anyone superseded uh, Sophie Coe's America's First Cuisines? Because that, that's old. That's like 1994, 95. It's like pushing 30.
2: I have not seen any serious attempt at addressing pre-Columbian uh, cultural food in English. Since then? Yeah, since then. There may be works in Spanish. Is that book any good? It is. It is. It's. Uh, I think it's quite seriously good. Um, it. Uh, it really wasn't um, interested in, in sort of hearsay on folklore. She was looking for, for documents. She was looking for archaeological evidence. She wrote it with her husband, who was an impressive uh, scholar of middle America. Um, a lot of the research was her own, but she used him as sort of a rigorous sounding board. Um, and uh, she also did a, a book called The True History of Chocolate, uh, which was done a few years later. Um, still in print also and, uh, and fascinating look at what we know the problem with a lot of that time is that the, there were records in many cases and they were destroyed by uh, Spanish colonial people who thought they were preserving the natives from their heathen ways right. and
0: uh, on the way out and we'll go right from whatever you say here it's been a pleasure having you on Thank uh, you. on the way out as usual we we'll, you know we'll have you back uh, for this I guess we're doing half half segments John basically yeah, uh, yeah. Flexible. Coda asked would love to hear a classic in the field about either old school uh, ancient cooking in general in gener- well, or na- Native Native American first people so here in the US anything what do we got other than The Sous Chef which is a
2: newer book not a right Sean Sherman's book is, is great but it's definitely a contemporary look at, at the use of traditional Native American ingredients but informed by classic technique um, no we don't really have um, some great Ancient work from even from the 19th century, as far as I know, it's um, that was pretty much stomped out. In a lot of cases, people who had indigenous traditions were uprooted and moved. They were forced to adapt their diets to uh, things like wheat, which were uh, beneficial to the the wealthy white settlers who were growing it and selling it to them. Um, so, it's there's a tremendous loss there. And, um, and documentation about what's out there is mostly about agricultural practices and what can be discerned. But in terms of, like, cooking, no. <laughs> Not to my knowledge. Well, there's a field of scholarship
0: open there, if Absolutely. it's possible. Absolutely, yeah. Well, Matt, thanks uh, so much. Uh, we're going to be right back with more Cooking Issues. This episode of Cooking Issues brought to you by Ora King Salmon, our favorite fish. Today we have Michael Fabro from Ora King to tell us more about it. The way that a, an animal, a fish specifically, is slaughtered has a huge effect on the actual quality of the, of the muscle meat. And you guys take great pains to make sure that the fish is under as little stress as possible, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Everything we do throughout their life cycle, we're trying to
0: minimize stress. But that becomes critically important at harvest. We basically gather the fish have them swim up kind of this, through this upstream channel where they will get to a point where there's a percussive stunner and a bleeder, and the percussive stunner will, will knock them out so that they're uh, not uh, aware of, of the next kill step, so they're not feeling pain, there's no release of lactic acid. So when you buy Orking, you're buying a salmon that is hatched in the second cleanest water in the world, kept in good conditions in a low-density environment, very good genetics with a very high fat content, is slaughtered under very non-stressful conditions, and shipped immediately to LAX, such that it arrives at your door from Gold Belly four days after uh, it was swimming in the water. Aura King Salmon, follow them on Instagram at Aura King Salmon. Everybody's favorite fish. And we're back. Uh, so I realized uh, after I let him go that I didn't answer some uh Ask him some questions. Gas station chef in PA wanted to know if, if the White Rabbit cookbook was still going to come out. Matt says it's been put on hold indefinitely. Why, John? I couldn't hear what he said.
1: Uh, well, I mean, yeah.
0: I don't really know much about that. Yeah. Yeah. Was that one owned by some like horrible person?
1: No, but I mean, he definitely a lot of rich Russian oligarchs would have eaten at his restaurants. One of the best restaurants in the world on the 50 best list.
0: Yeah. All right. Oh, wow. you just invented a new word. oligarch.
1: It's to like say oligarch.
0: I know, but like yeah. we got to get Nick from the olive oil thing oh, yeah. to come in. He's not going to be the oligarch. Uh, and I also forgot to ask uh, for uh, Miguel Kuntz, the bet like the best book on uh, for infusing uh, liquors, like a deep dive, like Liquid Intelligence style. Why don't you ask Matt offline, and we'll, we'll get that to him on the I boyfriend.
1: spoke to him about that beforehand. Uh, that doesn't really exist yet, unfortunately. Oh. Yeah.
0: Well, you can get that Italian liquors book that got ganked from May. <laughs>
1: yes, that's
0: true. <laughs> you know, because that's all, that's all infusions and stuff, but yeah. it's like Italian style, like Fiori the Alpi and all that yeah. stuff. So, well, I'm uh, glad you asked that, because then now we know that we yep. at least tried to get an answer. What else do we miss? Uh, foraging. Classic on oh. the field. I mean, Yule Gibbons. Stalking the whatever, stalking wild the blue-eyed was, scallops, yeah. stalking the wild asparagus, like uh, stalking the uh, the health herbs. Not as good, but like anyway, those. So, uh, Stas, you there? Yeah. Can I tell you a story? Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna enjoy it. Ready? You ready for, okay. for my morning? So you had your scam thing. So here's what happens to me. All right. So, <clears throat> uh-huh. uh, so for those of you that don't know, like in my house, you can't play music out loud. Because it triggers kind of Booker. He loses his mind. So, like, consequently, like, I haven't taught Dax, like, a lot of, like, you know, what I used to listen to. So, Dax, you know, only listens to, you know, very specific stuff. Anyway. So, like, when you want to hear music, you put earphones in. And so, like, people are walking around the house and we can't hear what's going on around us. Right? You know, you get the picture. So... Uh, you know, I go into the bathroom this morning. I'm doing my business, and I'm listening to uh, Soundgarden, as one does. Everyone who listens to the show knows I love Chris Cornell. I love Soundgarden. I'm listening to, uh, I forget what song it was. I think it was like, uh, you know, My Wave or something. And, of course, I'm marveling at how well Chris Cornell can go between, like, all those different registers, right? I mean, how seamlessly the man can go between all of his different registers, right? It's, 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 he's great. And then uh, the next song that comes on, because you know how— like, Nastasia likes this, but you know how you choose one song and then Apple will just decide what you're going to listen to next? Yeah. And it's not based on anything, right? Yeah. 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 So they decide that what I want to listen to is uh, Machine Head by Bush, right? Now, do you remember that song? You remember that? Yeah. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, like that crap. It's not bad. It's not a bad song. It's just like, I wasn't listening to the radio at that Point in my life because I owned a '76 Pontiac Bonneville. Uh, I hadn't yet spray painted it gold. It was right around the time I had spray painted it gold. But stuck in the cassette player was uh, a bootleg of uh, James Brown's "Star Time" uh, discs three and four. So that's all that I ever listened to was James Brown "Star Time" three and four for the entire time that I had that Pontiac because that's all the Pontiac played was James Brown. <laughs> Anytime you turned the key on, it was. James Brown so like that was like the soundtrack of my life for the time that Bush became famous so anyways I'm listening to my earphones breathe in breathe out I'm like this song is so much easier like the vocal range is so much smaller than freaking Chris Cornell so I'm like it's not a bad song but I'm like these guys are weak compared to Soundgarden right I mean just vocally I mean he's a good singer but it's just oh, not yeah. the same you agree with me right I mean it's just not as impressive of course yeah yeah so yeah. You know, I got this crap breathe in breathe out breathe in breathe out breathe in breathe out I get up, and uh, I lean over, and I'm hearing the breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. And then all of a sudden, the music stops. I'm like, what? And then I feel the earpiece falls out. My AirPod falls out of my ear. And I'm like, no. And I see, because my head is over the toilet. And it's falling into the business. And I'm like, and while it's falling... Like, my whole life is in, like, my whole brain is in slow mo. I'm having all of these thoughts. I'm like, I'm gonna have to reach in and reach out and reach in and reach out and reach in <laughs> to get it right through the business. And then, like, what am I gonna no. do with it? And so, but then I realize, oh no, my fingers already pressing the flush button and <laughs> gone, <laughs> gone. <laughs> Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. Anyway, yeah, that was my mind. Why morning. would you try to that? I, you, your mind does terrible things, does That's like I told you. I, like I knew this guy who knew someone who, their first day at at work, went to retrieve a pen they surf. dropped into the deep fryer because, or, or like people, if if you, if you're about to have your first job in a kitchen, like, and and no one tells you this. Your reflex is to reach for the knife that you've just dropped. Let it go. Get your feet out of the way. You know what I'm saying? Your reflex is to go get it, and it's not a good reflex.
1: No, not bad, very bad. <laughs> very bad. Yeah. yeah.
0: Or like you know, like anyone who's heard me say this, like when you catch on fire, your reflex is to run away from yourself. Why? Because you're on fire. Don't do that. You have to train yourself not to. Yeah, uh, so yeah. That was my that was my morning. Mm. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, I knew this Nastasy would appreciate that. I mean it's no Ugh, it's no closer yeah. but you know
2: nothing beats that Not-
0: no, yeah yeah if you know if if all of this goes really south and you know that and we're all going to get wiped off and there's going to be a nuclear armageddon right if that happens what sandwiches peter kim going to have as the missiles are coming in stas yeah. yeah the tuna tuna T- you think tuna do you have time to make a tuna yeah. fish sandwich? I guess I think it's like you have 15 minutes, right? It's 15 minutes from the time someone says go to the time we're all vaporized.
1: I mean, when you throw something in a wrap, yeah, it's, you know, quite nice, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Peter Kim, for, yeah. for, for new listeners, is uh, the, uh, you can go listen to his podcast. Uh, he was a former favorite punching bag when we were on the old Voldemort Network. And um, uh, yeah, the man... His, his main, one of his main skills is no matter what is happening, man will be eating a sandwich.
1: Truth. Yeah. No matter what it is.
0: No matter what it is. Like if he had been like, I want to Photoshop Peter Kim eating a sandwich into like images of the Titanic going down. He would have been on the deck of the Titanic, Titanic munching a sandwich. You know what I mean? While those band was playing. He's like, I'm listening to the world music here on the Titanic as we're going down. I got a sandwich. Anyway, Uh, yeah. All right. Positive MD wrote in any wrecks for food related activities around the UK. Listen, I have not been since well before the pandemic. So I'm going to ask the discord and and the Patreon people, uh, maybe some UK people over there, people who have been there recently to uh, hook us up with some information. Would that not be a a better plan?
1: Yeah. uh, Yeah. Hold up. Let me just read off what I sent him so everyone can.
0: Not By the way, a John uh, a John Hill recommendation is a good recommendation. The man knows his at least Belgian stuff,
1: at Thank least. You. Thank you. Um, okay, so definitely St. John uh, by Fergus Anderson. That's an absolute must. Um, then if you can get a reservation, Dinner by Heston Blumenthal. I was asked about that over the Fat Talk. I haven't been to the Fat Talk, so I can't say, but what I will say about Dinner by Heston is really the value that you get for what you— Pay for there is fantastic, and the food is super delicious. The staff is awesome. That uh, roasted pineapple dessert is really delicious, too. Um, then, in terms of just other places, uh, for fish and chips, the Golden Hind, Poppies, or Golden Union. Beirut Express for shawarma. The Three Stags for meat pies, I believe. Uh, M. Mann's is the oldest pie shop in London and is pretty fantastic. Brickling Bagel Bake for the salt beef bagel.
0: What? Bagels in London, really? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, Fortnum and Mason for supposedly original scotch egg. Even if it's not the original, it's still quite good. And I love a yeah, scotch egg. Yeah, me too. That's I, all I got.
0: So uh, Fabulous and Jeremiah and oh, the De Wild Shoom Air. also.
1: Have, I'm throw have, that have, one in the What is it? What is Sorry, Dishoom. I want to throw in the mix. Dishoom. Oh, yeah. D-I-S-H-O-O-M. Indian oh. uh, restaurant in Soho, I believe, in London. Very good.
0: Nice. Nice. The, uh, the original, but not the best Soho. I'm just messing with you. Uh, Fabulous and Jeremiah at Wild Air have a scotch egg olive, which is delicious. Yeah, it looks really good. It is. Uh, it doesn't just look good. You it, know, it, it tastes good. It tastes very good. Uh, and obviously, uh, you're not mentioning it because you're assuming that everyone already knows about it, but it might not be the case. You must go to Neil's Yard Dairy.
1: Yes. Yeah. Fair.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't assume that they know yeah, about true, Neil's true, true. Yard Dairy. Uh, it used to be uh, years and years and years and years ago, like, you know, 15 years ago or so. Uh maybe even longer was before maybe I had kids is that the airplane would land and I would go directly from the airport to Neil's yard dairy so that I would never be in my hotel room without cheese, you know? And for those of you in the United States who don't think Neil's yard dairy maybe is all that anymore, realize that they send, they don't send always their best stuff here. Like the stuff at Neil's yard is just no. freaking Amazing. And if it wasn't for Neil's Yard Dairy, I mean they were very early in the kind of cheese renaissance and like I mean have just done untold good for the cheese world. Would you not agree, John? Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. Also Borough Market is just kind of cool to, well, to and, go to.
0: Yeah, and there is a Neil's Yard there. It's yeah. not the original yeah, one. Exactly. But I think that's now their main wholesale distribution point, and that's where they sell the grilled cheese sandwiches uh, or did a couple of days a week. And yeah, Borough Market's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh all right. So, uh, let's get to some social uh, media and email. Do we have omelet. any more Patreon questions? Yeah, Omelette. I miss? From Zander. Oh, Zander. Uh, I've been watching all of these Omelette videos. By the way, do you like Omelette traditional style, two T's and E, or are you guys more E and T, more American style?
1: I still do the two T's. Two T's and an E? Yeah. Because yeah, that's how I learned to yeah. do it in French. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Stas? No, I don't care. Wow. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Brand on brand, Nastasia Lopez on brand. Well, let me ask you oh. this, Nastasia: What kind of omelets do you like? Omelets, right? I don't usually eat them. No. No. So, but what, like, so, yeah, like, really. w- when you when someone says to you omelet, what do you think? Like, what is an omelet to you?
2: Like, what's inside of it?
0: Well, in other words, are you thinking like a small wet thing or like a big puffy kind of like hard cooked thing? Does it have a bunch of stuff on the um, inside? Hard cooked, lobster crap inside. Okay, okay, okay. And uh, what, what, what about what about all the other guys? What's like what's in your mind? As I say omelet. What do you what do you what do you think?
1: So the first thing I think of is, like, the omelet station at a hotel when they Ooh. do, you know, buffet breakfast or something. It's horrible. It's just the first image. No, that comes no, 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 my no, mind. no, 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 no. Because I don't generally eat I don't really have omelets at even, home.
0: Even know? if you don't eat it at the station, just watching that. There is a guy at a—so, if you drive along I-95, there is a truck stop called—what uh, is it? Um, T-something on I-95, like, just outside of Brantford. You come out of New, uh, New Haven, you go north, there's a truck stop that you pass there, and I remember when I was in my early 20s, we would go there and uh, the omelet station at the All You Could Eat Buffet was run by a guy that we called uh, uh, Rat Boy because he was, you know, a little bit younger than us. And he looked like like a human personified rat, like Ratatouille, Rat Boy. I now realize this guy's in his probably late 40s. He's, probably, he's a rat man now. He's a rat man. Yep. But it's not that his <laughs> omelets were great. But in the way that Dave Wondrich once told me that just the sight of the, of the airline uh, drink cart makes him, like, salivate Pavlov style, <laughs> like, the idea of, like, the omelet station, I just find so enjoyable, you know, regardless of the quality of the omelets yeah.
1: produced. you want to talk about some omelet technique?
0: So what Xander is thinking about is the—what about you, Joe? What's your <laughs> omelet? Uh, I don't need eggs. Oh, all right. At all or in things? No, I don't, I just I'm sorry I don't eat eggs. They don't agree with me. Oh, all right. Okay. Uh I'm assuming John uh thinks about the French little like like you yeah. know w- w- how do you describe that? It's not a teardrop, it's like a double sided teardrop, it's like a it's like a lozenge shape. It's like a – how do you describe that?
1: I don't know, that's a good question. In a in a way
0: that's not uh suggestive. In a non suggestive what what is that shape in a non suggestive way?
1: Uh, tube with pointy ends? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I don't know, yeah. So you're watching, I'll have to sit yeah. and think about right, We'll one. think
0: about it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so it's kind of a very uh, blonde, no brown on it. No brown. Like wet ish, but not gooey. Correct. Little suggestive shape. And so that's the omelet that we're talking about. And uh, typically, you know, Jocomo's, like us, would make it in a nonstick pan, but traditionally you'd make it in a very well-seasoned uh, blue or, or you know, carbon steel pan that is used exclusively for omelettes. Omelets. John, are you putting anything else in that pan? No. What if someone put something else in that pan? Death. Yeah, death. death. That pan is for that. So, I've been watching all these omelette videos of uh, Jacques Pepin. By the way, Jacques Pepin, famous. Worked with, him, worked with him for a bunch of years at the French Culinary Institute where he was one of the deans. So uh, in Finding Nemo, the, the shrimp's name was Jacques. And so Booker, early on, saw that and he was like, that shouldn't be Jacques, that should be Jackwes." And so we had a cleaner shrimp at the time because we had a saltwater tank and we called the cleaner shrimp Jacquez. Mm-hmm. So in our house, Jacques was always Jacquez. So then I started calling... With Nastasia and with our interns, I started calling Jacques Papin Jack Wes Peepin. And then from Jack Wes Peepin, it went to the Peep Show and then also sometimes Jackie Peeps. So in, in our house, he's Jackie Peep and then yeah, and then we had like a remember that tall intern Andrew Nastasia? Yeah. And he used to come up with nicknames for Jackie Peeps constantly and then he would do the Jackie Peeps voice. Anyway, yes. Yeah. Yes. Andrew, he was hilarious. Anyway. Uh, so whenever you say Jacques Pepin, I'm always thinking... Jackie Peeps. Yeah, or Jacques was peeping. Anyway. So we got three minutes. Uh, I feel like I can make... Uh, okay. And I feel like I can make my omelets like perfectly wrapped, but the problem is that I can't do it while making the eggs as runny as he does, because uh, then they leak out the side and stuff. Because when you're trying to do the final flip, all of the eggy mixture, a lot of it hasn't gotten tucked in properly. So when you're uh, told to fold the final bit over, part of the runny bit in the middle starts folding out. Onto the sides, you can never really get the lip over perfectly. So it's very tricky, and I don't understand what technique I need to do. It just seems insurmountable. I don't get it. It's so hard. How do they do it? Well, what they do is, is uh, this is literally how they do it, is they have someone who knows how to do it stand over your shoulder, and then they have you make them constantly until you get it right. That's basically what they do. So, uh, I mean, and without seeing you do it, I can't really, I'm not very good at it, but I could probably be the guy standing over your shoulder. Make sure that your pan is well seasoned. And just, look, keep watching the videos and don't listen to anything anyone is saying. Just watch the videos and look at the eggs.
1: And oh, the hands.
0: And the hands. Yeah. Look at the eggs in the hands. Watch how he's see moving, moving the pan. Watch and see whether was... or not... Are you, a, are you a bump the wrist? Or are yeah. you Yeah. You got to watch when they bump the wrist. Watch when they do it. Watch the angle of the pan and figure that all out. Just so you know, so I'm, I'm allowed to keep answering questions. What should I hit? I'll hit one uh, out of here. Uh, from Steven. Ooh, this is going to be a long one. On flowers. I'll no. hit it quick. Impossible. How much time do I have, John?
1: Two minutes. Two minutes? Minute and a half. Minute and a half. All
0: right. All right, Steven. My question about blending flours with different protein contents. There's a famous chocolate chip cookie recipe that blends 50-50 cake flour, which is 8% protein, and bread flour, which is about 12.7. Well, it depends on what you use. My question is, do blends like this function as a flour with the average of their protein contents, in this case, 10.35%, or are there specific qualities that are achieved with a blend? I would think that AP flour sits around this percentage and the recipe doesn't call for it. There must be a reason for mixing. Thanks so much, Steven from Chicago. It is not the same. The difference between, look, cake flour is not just soft in terms of protein, It has very low damage starch, which means that it normally wouldn't hold water very well, but it's been brominated so that it does hold water. In a cookie recipe, I would actually try subbing a soft flour that doesn't have bromination or bleaching so that you you don't have the water holding. It means you can use less water and it'll change the spread. But if the recipe is what the recipe is, it is what it is. But no... It's an interesting mix because putting cake flour in lowers the protein without lowering its water holding capacity that much. From Joe Waterhouse: Hey Dave, I've been thinking about tap cocktails for a while, and wonder if you could uh, help me. Oh no, this is the one I told you to reword. I don't understand what they're saying. If he
1: wants to put the keg in a cement mixer to keep everything stirring. Is that stupid?
0: You got to keep the gas connected to it. So I mean, like the thing is, you got to figure out a way to have the gas fitting rotate without getting your your uh, thing all floppity mcdoppity. Otherwise, yeah, sure it'll work, but I mean, I mean. I mean, I mean, (laughs) I mean, cooking issues.